When are Bayesian methods most useful? Conversely, when should you not use them? How do you teach them? What are the most important skills to pick up when learning Bayes? And what are the most difficult topics? The ones you should maybe save for later. In this episode, you'll hear Chris Fonsbeck answer these questions from the perspective of marine biology and sports analytics. Chris is indeed the New York Yankees senior quantitative analyst and is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He specializes in computational statistics, Bayesian methods, meta-analysis, and applied decision analysis. He also created PyMC, a library to do probabilistic programming in Python, and is the author of several tutorials at PyCon and PyData conferences. Hey folks, just a note before beginning, Chris was recently interviewed by Thomas Vicky for the PyData podcast, so I tried to tackle different angles of what Chris is doing, which is honestly not very hard given how many things he's an expert on. As a result, I think both episodes are worth listening, so I strongly encourage you to check out Chris's appearance on the PyData podcast. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 2, recorded September 30. 2019. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow Chris Funsbeck, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. Thank you for taking the time. It's a real treat having you here. Uh, actually, you're the author of the first tutorial I watched on Asian inference some years ago, the one you did at Bicon 2017. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was immediately hooked on Bayes in general and PyMC3 in particular. I really encourage any beginner to watch it. I definitely put the link in the show notes. It's really interesting. Well, yeah, it was uh, introductory, but you also took the time, if I remember right, to also introduce some multi-level models, which is a performance in one tutorial. Yeah, I guess that's a little bit more of an advanced topic, but it's one of the reasons that people come to Bayesian modeling is to do things like hierarchical models. So you may as well start off with something that yeah, would be Yeah, definitely. And yeah, actually, you find that uh, in your experience, people get introduced to Bayesian methods basically through multi-level models? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I know that's, you know, sort of a motivating factor for people getting started. And maybe some of the examples are tend to be hierarchical. I was introduced so long ago that, uh, you know, I'm not even really sure what people go by now. Often it's not being able to get your work done with the existing tools. So you go off and you know, yeah. for something. Yeah. And actually, I have to different. say, uh, me, me too. In my case, uh, I got into Bayesian methods precisely because I read about uh, multi-level models on the internet. And I was really amazed by the magic of the idea to be able <laughs> to, to handle an unbalanced uh, data set and the power of uh, shrinkage of information and pooling. It's really great. Yeah, but that's true that it's more of an advanced topic. You have to you have to study more things before really being able to run multi-level models, I guess. Yeah, I think most people come to it 
with sort of a more pragmatic motivation. You always hear about one of the reasons that maize is attractive is because it's sort of philosophically satisfying and, you know, that has some attributes that maybe we could talk about later, you know, about, uh, you know, being able to integrate prior information and expert opinion with data and everything sort of fits together really nicely. But I think most people come to it because it kind of gets the job done as opposed to it, you know, being some sort of philosophical motivation. Yeah, so I could do the, the whole episode on that in you know, multi-level models, but uh, <laughs> but first, uh, I think it, it would be very interesting to have a word on your background. And so actually, how did you first get introduced to Python and Bayesian methods? And I guess, why do you still use them today? Yeah, so it's funny you say Python and Bayes together because they don't always go together. I guess I would imagine most Bayesians are probably our users. I don't know. That's just a guess, not based on any actual data. But, uh, but I did, certainly was exposed to both of them at approximately the same time. When I was a uh, PhD student specifically, that's when I was um, starting to look at Bayesian methods to get my own PhD work done. And my background was actually as a Java programmer, so my, my first real job, quote, after my master's degree was working for a consulting company doing uh, a lot of Java programming. And when I moved back to do my PhD, I sort of wanted to move away from that sort of paradigm to exploring R. And then around the same time, I discovered Python. And this was, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s. And so this is kind of the, even the early days of using Python for quote unquote data science, which I guess didn't even exist as a as kind of a topic then. And, and so I was using them both to build models for ecological inference. So I was um, studying duck harvest management. So kind of trying to come up with how you can manage populations of ducks. They get hunted and they, they die or their population changes for other reasons other than hunting. And so it was a, lots of big, messy observational data sets with sort of a premium of quantifying uncertainty. And then there was this whole decision analysis integration. And so this made it really suitable for the application of Bayesian methods. Yeah, so I guess it was quite naturally that you get into that based on the topics you had to, to study, right? Yeah, and it was kind of fun because this was really the early days, I guess, of Bayesian methods applied kind of outside of statistics to other real-world problems. And so the whole lab that I was involved with at the University of Georgia were all kind of exploring and discovering Bayes together, which was kind of fun. We'd read papers and play with the available software at the time. Yeah, clearly, yeah. yeah. And actually, you touched a little bit on that already, but a question I often get asked when I say that I'm learning a Bayesian statistics is what's the added value of Bayesian techniques compared to, to classical frequentist method? Yeah, it's funny because the frequentist methods are kind of the default. And then, you know, you're kind of deviating from the norm if you use Bayesian methods, which is purely a function of, you know, one being more prevalent than the other. And I think the big reason for me is that it answers the question that most people are trying to ask with their research, you know, sort of the, the inverse probability question. So I have an unknown value, I have an unknown model parameter, I have an unknown quantity that I'm trying to estimate, and what is my best guess at the value of that quantity given the data that I observe? And that's really the most direct way of, of approaching that sort of a problem. With classical or frequentist methods, you're doing the reverse of that, right? You're conditioning on the thing you don't know, and then you're saying, what's the probability of having observed the data that I've observed? And that's not really what you're trying to answer. You're sort of turning the problem on its head. You know, apart from that, there are a couple of other really good reasons. For me, it was building integrated models becomes a lot easier. And by integrated models, I mean, you know, when you have a whole set of things that you're trying to estimate that all fit together. So you have a data generating model that might have lots of components associated with it. Fitting a big model like that, big in terms of 
numbers of parameters rather than big in terms of the size of the data set is a lot easier to do in a, in a single unified framework to estimate one model. Often I found myself using frequentist methods, kind of having to do sequential estimation where you have a sub-model and you estimate something and then you take that estimate and you put it in as an input to the next model and you tend to lose things along the way when you do that. And then I guess just more broadly, you know, the focus with Bayesian methods is almost always on estimation rather than hypothesis testing, which is usually the inference mode of choice for a frequentist. And again, most of the questions I'm trying to answer, scientists are supposed to always be testing hypotheses, but you're really just evaluating hypotheses. And I think a better way to do that in most cases is to estimate things and then put bounds or uncertainty around that. And then I guess maybe the last thing would be that you have the outputs from your research, from your modeling efforts, are always in terms of probabilities with Bayes. And, and this confers a number of advantages, one and not the least of which is, is the translational step, where you have to take the results of your analyses and communicate them to somebody else that's not a statistician or a data scientist, right? So when I was a biostatistician, giving results to doctors or research scientists, or now in, in terms of baseball, handle, you know, handing uh, a result to a to a coach or a player, everybody kind of knows what a probability is. They might not always able to interpret a p-value or confidence interval. Yeah, indeed. In my in my experience, too, uh, one thing I really loved is how the Bayesian equivalents of confidence intervals are in Bayes. I mean, uh, often they are called. They have many names: uh, predictability interval, compatibility intervals, and so on. But uh, what's really great they, is that you can really interpret them as you see them. Right. And, and, and a lot of people mistakenly interpret confidence intervals as if they were credible intervals. In fact, I would guess that most people do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, although actually one interesting question also uh, I get often when I talk uh, to people in the business area and not in academia, I agree that uh, Bayesian methods are great, but uh, it's a cost for me to, to train myself on that because as you said, it's not the default. So often you don't have training for that in university. Uh, the fitting of the model can also be uh, problematic in some areas. For instance, the multi-level or hierarchical models we talked about in the beginning of the show can be, uh, can be challenging to fit. And that's where I I guess the projects like uh, PyMC uh, are really great because they're supposed to help you fit that. But uh, what's your experience in, in that area? I mean, uh, when you work on models, <laughs> and I guess you're working mainly on complicated uh, hierarchical models with uh, several hundreds of parameters, actually, what's the allocation of time you spend on fitting the model versus thinking about the Bayesian uh, generative process, uh, the data generative process uh, behind the, the model? As the sort of the, the saying goes, you, you spend 90% of your time, you know, playing around with your data rather than doing the modeling. So like any other statistical or data science endeavor, you know, data manipulation <laughs> takes up more time than you'd like. But there, my approach involves kind of an iterative framework where you, you, you start building by hacking together a, a simple model and you, you make it more complex kind of as, as the model fit requires it. And, and it is really nice to have high-level tools to do this, like PyMC and Stan and, and other packages, because it, it really makes it easy to do that sort of an iterative model building approach when you don't have to completely you know, rewrite your model every time you make you know, relatively minor changes to it. So I do spend a lot of time waiting for MCMC chains to, to finish running. But it, there is a step, particularly at the beginning, where you spend a lot of time thinking about what your model is going to look like 
in a broad sense and and thinking about kind of what the data generating model is because in Bayes the key is you have your likelihood which describes the distribution of the data and that's really how your data gets generated notionally and and then you work upwards from that back to the things that you need to estimate. And so you do a lot of that thinking up front. And with a package like PyMC, you can kind of use your computing tools as a virtual whiteboard and put these things together piece by piece and run it at interim steps to kind of get a sense of what your model is trying to do. I've come to do more often these days is exploit the usage of uh, prior predictive checks where, you know, you kind of see what your model does without any data and see if it generates anything sensible. And that's often a good first step for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, I discovered uh, prior predictive checks uh, also because in one of the last releases of IMC, I don't know if it's 3.6, I guess, you released a prior predictive checks method. I realized that they are also very important when you're doing generalized linear models because of the link function, you can have a distorted outcome space uh, relative to the parameter space. So what you think are sound priors on the parameter space because of the link function, they can become completely nonsensical priors on the outcome space. For sure. Yeah. And we, you know, we've been, for those of us that started doing Bayes in the nineties and early two thousands, you know, there was sort of a tradition of using uninformative priors for things. And you can often end up in a bad place by doing that for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. And in general, it's always good to make sure that when you generate data from priors, which presumably have very little information associated with them, the things that you're trying to estimate fall in that space somewhere, because if they don't, you're going to have a really hard time. Yeah, a really hard time sampling, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so something interesting, I think, share with listeners, because here we're talking about when uh, using Bayesian inference, and I guess you're using it as much as you can. But actually, other cases when you would not use Bayesian inference and what would be these cases? From my perspective, I use it for virtually everything. The obvious place for me where frequentist methods are very appropriate are for things like model checking, right? Whenever you go back and analyze how well you did on something, there you're looking for a frequentist approach, right? You, if you want to look back on your career, for example, <laughs> and uh, decide how many times you were right in terms of model inference over your entire career, that's kind of a frequentist evaluation. It's based on long run, repeated outcomes of sort of exchangeable events. And so in that case, you would use frequentist methods. When you do Bayesian model checking, posterior predictive checks, those are frequentist. Those aren't Bayesian, even though you're using them to analyze a Bayesian model, because again, it's based on long run frequency. So anytime you're doing sort of reliability evaluation, model checking and those sorts of things, then it doesn't make sense to use a Bayesian approach. Right, very interesting. I did not know about that. And actually also something related is um, now you work in more in the business side of thing, but uh, you worked mainly in academia till now. And so I wonder how widespread or accepted Bayesian methods are in your academic fields. I mean, how hard is it to find co-authors, publish papers that don't revolve around frequent p-values? It can be a little bit of a challenge, although it doesn't usually take much to convince people. In my case, where I was doing first ecological research and then biomedical research, on the ecological side, I think ecologists were among the first to apply Bayesian methods in sort of the mainstream. But on the early days there, yeah, there was the expectation of p-values. And if you didn't have them, 
you had to address why there weren't any. Why weren't you testing for the significance of, of all the parameters in your regression model, for example? You really just have to show them what the Bayesian approach is and why it's probably better than trying to use p-values for inference. So you, you kind of show them the alternative. Often people will be nervous or your colleagues will be nervous submitting to journals because presumably the journals will expect p-values and your research won't get published unless they're significant, quote unquote, results. But I've never had an issue with a paper being rejected because I did not have p-values. And it's pretty easy to counter whatever argument you would get in that effect. And it doesn't take very long to kind of defend your position. And really, if you're submitting to a journal that simply does not take Bayesian outputs, you should probably be looking somewhere else anyway, because it would be, I think, a pretty backward publication, particularly in 2019, that would be doing that. So it hasn't been all that hard. Most of the convincing has to do with people that you're working with who perhaps only took one or two semesters of statistics and were only taught t-tests and ANOVAs and things like that. And they really don't know anything else. And I was lucky enough to work, for the most part, with very smart, open-minded people that uh, were kind of willing to, to trust me on that. Yeah, it's very interesting because you're, you're actually uh, the second guest to say that in the previous episode where I had Osvaldo Martin uh, on the show. And he also said that in, uh, in bioinformatics, actually Bayesian methods are really common and very widespread. He didn't have any real problems to use them and get published. I think it varies by... The branch of science that you're in, you know, psychologists, ecologists, bioinformaticians are probably in a different state of progression, I guess, towards Bayesian methods than others. But I think it's becoming more widespread and it's changing quickly. So it's not as big of a problem, I think, as it perhaps once was. Yeah. yeah okay. But would your posterior prediction be that these kinds of methods are also going to be more widespread in the social sciences than they are right now? Because uh, definitely from my point of view, from a social scientist point of view in political science or economics, you, you see a lot less patient methods in big papers and big journals. I'm surprised to hear that because you've got people like Andrew Gelman, who's a social scientist and even a political scientist. And He's definitely Bayesian. So I would think it's, yeah, moving pretty rapidly. And, and I think also because of the advent of machine learning and, and the use of machine learning methods, there's been kind of a convergence between Bayesian machine learning recently too. And, you know, that may also aid in the increased exposure of these methods for people that might not know that they exist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So an interesting uh, things to to talk about also is your many areas of expertise, as I said earlier. So I wonder how you divide your time. You know, is there a, such a thing as a typical day for you or uh, is it uh, like uh, very, very various uh, according to the week? I've done a lot of things, but I don't really consider my an expert in any of them. I'm interested in a lot of things. And so I've been lucky enough to be able to have had a couple of different careers in very interesting parts of science. But uh, I guess my days now that I work in sports are actually a little bit more focused than they used to be because I don't have teaching responsibilities anymore by and large. And, and all of the academic um, sort of overhead that I used to have to deal with, I, I don't anymore. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, baseball and how to build useful models using those sorts of data sets. But uh, I'm being paid to you know build useful models for people. So I'm doing a lot of the things I love, which is uh, baseball and Python and, and Bayesian methods. And I get to probably spend 70 to 80% of my time building models and, uh, and generating results that are immediately put into practice in, in my field. So it's been great so far. That's great to hear. And actually, I am... Um... I also wanted to ask you how these methods are used in, in sports analytics. Why are Bayesian methods useful in sports analytics? I understand you can't speak specifically about exactly what you're doing with the Yankees, but uh, maybe tell us about how baseball uses data differently maybe from other sports. 
I'm maybe not even as well-placed as you might think to answer this because I've only been in the job a few months, but it's a similar situation to an ecologist in the sense that you have uh, large, messy observational data sets, right? You can't do experiments in baseball. You have to use model-based inference rather than design-based inference. And so you take the data you have and, and try to adjust for as many covariates or confounders as you can and, and use them to make models that are useful. And, and I guess the key with sports analytics is that is the tie directly into decision-making. Uh, you're not making any of these models for academic purposes. You're using them to help your team win soccer games or basketball games or whatever the application is. And key at the end of the day is to build something that will help you make better decision and how it differs from other sports. I'm not sure. I guess baseball is a little more unique in the events that you're observed tend to be discrete relative to things like soccer and basketball, where it's it's a little bit more continuous. I guess American football would fall into that same classification of discrete events. So in one sense, it makes it easier, but it's just, you know, sort of a slightly different set of models that you would end up using. But it's just such a wide range. You know, you can use them for almost any aspect of the sport. So yeah, because actually it's interesting you you mentioned soccer because as a, as a European, I'm more versed into, into soccer, I have to say. Maybe my prior is completely wrong or completely biased, but um, I'm under the impression that Europe is way behind the US in data analytics, especially in soccer, at least in, in continental Europe. I know the Premier League is, is using more of these data models, but uh, in continental Europe, I would say that we're lagging behind in this sort of thing. So maybe from what you say, you can't answer my question, but... Yeah, my impression is slightly different. I think they're making pretty good strides. When I do read articles and literature about uh, soccer, they're using some fairly advanced stuff. You start to hear more about, you know, expected goals uh, in soccer, which you didn't hear a few years ago. And that whole idea of trying to separate the process from the randomness or the luck that you would call it in sports. And so it was this win because they were luckier, because they were playing better. Those are at the heart of what you try to do in baseball as well, is separate the things that are due to chance from the things that are due to the player playing well or the team playing well. I have seen applications in continental Europe. I know, I can't remember the fellow's name now, but he uh, worked for Mitchell in the Danish Superliga and uh, helped them win their first ever title there. And he was very much based on baseball-like approach to football analytics. But I would imagine the data is a lot harder to collect. You know, you see a lot of heat maps and things, and it's simultaneously spatial and temporal. So there's a lot of spatial temporal data, which is automatically going to be harder to analyze and, and synthesize than whether or not a player hit a ball or didn't hit a ball. Yeah. So that's why you say that data would be harder to collect for uh, for soccer than for baseball. I'm sure they are collecting. I've also heard stories of a lot of manual processing of data in soccer versus a lot of the baseball data that is automatically collected now. And, and I would imagine that's being quickly automated. But, so maybe to sum up, you would you say that uh, soccer is maybe not inherently less predictable with data than, for instance, baseball, but maybe that uh, data is more complicated to collect. That's why it, it takes maybe longer to get the data squeezed and, and the models running. It's possible. And I'd also imagine that it might be harder to build models for soccer as well, because, you know, one of the things you will end up doing, say, in baseball is just trying to isolate the effects of particular players and their influence on a game. So in baseball, you have a quantity called wins above replacement, and it's the value a particular player has in terms of wins relative to a player that you can pick up for free. And so this is nominally their value to a team in terms of wins, which is what counts. Something like that for soccer, I would think, would be very difficult because of the way that they're integrated on the field, isolating their effect relative to the other 10 players on the field, I would imagine would be quite difficult. 
So maybe it is harder to gain inferences from data football, but um, probably just too early to tell. You probably want to interview somebody that's more knowledgeable about it than me. <laughs> maybe that's a topic for a future show. Oh, yeah, I will definitely do that. <laughs> if, some, uh, if some listeners are uh, really experts, I'd be really happy to... No, but uh, that's that's really interesting, uh, honestly. Too, I, I feel I need to to compare uh, baseball to to something I know more because as a European, yeah, we don't we really don't have baseball uh, yet. Uh, maybe we'll have one day, but uh, yeah. And actually, I think uh, one big um, one big utility of uh, having that, uh, at least in soccer, but I'm wondering if you do that too in baseball or in American football, is uh, isolating the effect of the manager of the team, the trainer. You know, in soccer, it's a really important aspect of the game, how the manager is responding to events on the field. Is it important in baseball? And can you do that even? I don't know about that. I would imagine it would be difficult. That's not anything I've ever worked on. But um, the problem there is that there's so much confounding, right? Uh, the manager doesn't change all that quickly, uh, all that frequently. And so it's the manager tends to stay with the same team for long periods of time. And I think it would be difficult to estimate their effect. And, and then, of course, you'd, you'd anticipate there'd be temporal dynamics to that. You know, the whole idea of a, a new manager bump where you get an initial period of improved performance and that, that wears off over time. You know, I guess you can estimate things like that from existing data. I don't know, maybe you could even pool it across sports. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it would be really interesting, but I, I don't know anything that's been done in that arena. Yes, that's good. That's room, uh, room to learn even more. And actually, I'd like to talk about your uh, teaching side now. Uh, and maybe it's even more interesting now that you've put that on hold uh, for now. I wonder what is it like teaching Bayesian methods? I mean, did you see a, a bump in enrollments in your in your course uh, across the, the years you did that? Or uh, that would reflect a more interest in the field? How was it for you? Yeah. Well, first, I actually still do do a fair bit of teaching, but not in a formal classroom setting. So I, I try to go to PyData when I can, PyCon. I typically will teach a tutorial there, and that's, that's the sort of teaching I really like to do. You know, anytime I taught Bayesian courses, uh, either at Vanderbilt or in New Zealand, where I had my first academic job, that the classes were always full and, and there was always a lot of interest. So maybe that reflects kind of a new generation of applied statistician that is aware of these methods and just wants to learn more about them. They are maybe a little bit harder to pick up than, you know, frequentist methods. Uh, they certainly require a lot of programming because you typically have to do simulation to get answers, model estimates and things. So having some programming skills is almost essential as opposed to you know, using commercial software like Stata or SPSS where you can sort of use drop-down menus to get estimates for things uh, using frequentist methods. So, um, you know, I think programming is becoming a more common skill than it was 10 years ago or, or even five years ago. So as young scientists come along equipped as programmers, um, these methods will be you know, easier to teach. And it really helps to have some background in probability. And so if you're teaching these approaches to beginners, it is really helpful to provide some background in, in probability, which isn't the easiest aspect of statistics to learn, uh, particularly some of the deeper concepts. But uh, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to have kind of some intuition with probability and, and know about some of the properties and how to use probability distributions. You don't necessarily have to be an expert on measure theory in, in order to be useful in applying the methods. Yeah, actually, I noticed that's something you try to do at the beginning of your tutorials in general at Python or something like that. And that's true. It's very useful, uh, at least to better understand your model after it's sampled. I think that would be a more useful thing in general for universities to teach students 
with only a limited amount of time to learn statistics, you know, rather than teaching methods courses that sort of blindly apply regression and ANOVA and things like that, it would be better to teach them probability and linear algebra because with those tools, you can go off and learn things on your own, whereas it's really difficult to do that if you've only learned the methods and have no understanding or superficial understanding of the underlying concepts. Yeah, yeah. Which topics did you find are the most difficult to impart to your students that learn Bayesian statistics? I guess the hardest general skill tends to be translating mathematical notation to code, right? So a lot of people can write their model down, you know, kind of as a regression model, let's say, or a linear model. But then it's hard to take that and translate it into PyMC or STAN or something else. So having that translational skill, I guess, is hard. It's not hard, I guess. It's just probably a different way of thinking than maybe a lot of people are used to. And then, you know, how to appropriately parameterize these models. So what, what do I choose as, as a prior? Why am I choosing a gamma all the time or whatever it is? Uh, so having that kind of intuition about probability distributions and when to add that structure into your model can also be tricky. And that, and that just comes with practice, I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. At least in my experience, that's totally true. At the beginning, it was really hard to understand why would you pick this prior instead of this other prior. And that's where our prior predictive checks, as we talked about at the beginning, are, are very, very important. Yeah, in general, the, the translation of your model into code can be really challenging, especially when it's a multi-layer, multi-level model that, that can be really challenging. For sure. And yeah, and, and a lot of the tricks are are specific to different implementations of Bayesian inference. So some of the idiomatic things in PyMC don't apply to Stan and vice versa. So, you know, you kind of have to learn these tricks all over again if you switch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also because uh, PyMC is based on Theano, at least until uh, PyMC3. And sometimes you have to learn tricks that are even in Theano. So that's another layer of, uh, of knowledge to, to acquire. And actually that's uh, a little off topic, but I know PyMC4 is going to be based on TensorFlow probability. So you think these tricks that were useful in Theano will now have to be translated into TensorFlow probability, I guess. And I guess it's really hard to for you as a core developer of the package to give uh, users all the amazing stuff in TensorFlow and at the same time not to confuse people uh, too much with this transition from Theano to TensorFlow. Yeah, I mean, that's really challenging. I um you know, I don't do much core programming anymore. In fact, one, I think one of my main roles now is is as kind of benevolent dictator for life of the PyMC project is kind of taking the 10,000-foot view and ensuring that the key attributes of PyMC survive from one major version to the next. And the most important of those is this really easy-to-use high-level API that makes it really easy for applied users to build models. I think that's the key advantage that PyMC3 has over some of its competitors. And our main challenge moving to PyMC4 based on TensorFlow is retaining as much of that as we can from PyMC3. And uh, there's ultimately, you know, there's always trade-offs that have to be made. It will take some getting used to. It won't be the same. There's just no way for it to be the same because it's a, an entirely different computational model that we're dealing with now, particularly now with TensorFlow 2, which works sort of in an entire different way than Theano. So we hope the trade-offs will be worth it, but uh, PyMC3 models certainly will not run under PyMC4. So, <laughs> so users have to be ready for change. Uh, we can only hope that it's good change. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody's working very hard on it right now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
I follow uh, the BIMC repo and I can see that uh, there is a, a lot of work uh, going on right now about that, uh, a lot of which I really don't understand, <laughs> to be honest. And actually, do, do you already guys uh, have a date in mind for uh, when this uh, huge project is going to be ready or is it uh, very exploratory still right now? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of putting uh, dates on uh, roadmaps, <laughs> particularly one like this. Uh, but there is code now. You, I think we're probably close to having an alpha version out. There's runnable code. Don't expect your favorite model to work under PyMC4 yet, but there is runnable code now, and we have an idea of, of what things are going to look like, and we've got samplers and, and things like that going. So it's very embryonic, but um, you know, like I said, we're making slow but steady progress, and we hope to ramp it up in the next few months. It's very interesting, and I encourage listeners to to go take a look at the repo. It's, it's very interesting to look at that. I'm always amazed by the quantity of work uh, you guys are able to do. Yeah, I'm always amazed, and I'm very awed by the amount of talent that we have at the, on the PyMC project. Back in the good old days, it was just me and one or two other people who typically you know, weren't computer scientists or even fully-fledged statisticians, and now we've got a really talented group of both, and uh, we're able to do some amazing things. So that's why I'm hopeful that this is going to be a really good uh, project. Maybe to go back and wrap up on the teaching side of thing, what do you think, from your experience, are the essential skills you're trying to instill in your students when they start learning Bayesian statistics? Wow, that's a good question. I get sort of to go back to some of the things we we're talking about before. Certainly having a, those foundations in probability and linear algebra are, are extremely important, but also having skills in model-based inference. So thinking hard about your model and what you're trying to achieve or estimate from it and having a sense of what data generating mechanism these are all skills that I didn't really think about when I was learning statistics, you know, as an undergraduate of core importance with probabilistic programming and Bayesian inference and becoming a skilled programmer, which is, is now essential. And having a high level programming language like Python or, or R, even outside of the context of a particular package like Stan or PyMC, you know, is going to go a long way for you to be able to implement these models, you know, anywhere you go. Having a, a scientist that looks maybe closer to a computer scientist than they did 10 or more years ago is really important. Yeah, so that's a good checklist to, to follow. I guess it takes time and practice to master all of these uh, different uh, arts. But that's true. I, I really hear uh, what you're saying about yeah, the idea of thinking hard about the model. And actually, that's one of those things I love in Bayesian inference because you have to put uh, all your priors in the model, and then you know what assumptions the model is making so that you are able to interpret after it's sampled, what the model can say, and maybe most importantly, what the model cannot say. And yeah, so if you don't think about the model and the causal inference before that, maybe you lose part of the power of Bayesian inference, which is being able to explain what your analysis can say. I think your model is really just a very explicit uh, and specific version of your hypothesis of whatever hypothesis that you're tackling as a scientist. And that's really nice to have, right? Because if you've got it encoded in Python and that is made available to people that you can't hide anything, right? Uh, everything associated with your hypothesis is right there, including your priors and, and your, your likelihood and, and everything that you're trying to do and, and proposing. And so that's, I think, really useful, right? Because often people can have vague hypotheses and uh, that can result in ineffective science. Whereas if you're building a model, your model represents, to an, in a very extreme sense, you, what your hypothesis is claiming. And you can use things like posterior and prior checks to see whether or not it's 
doing things that are nonsensical. And if they are, you have to go back and revise it, just like you would perhaps go have to go back and revise scientific hypotheses. So in that sense, it's very close to the scientific method, which is really nice. And yeah, actually, uh, if you will have a, a ready-made answer to that question, but uh, I was wondering if you have an, an interesting example for our listeners of how you used base in marine biology, because you did uh, quite a lot of that, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, my first job after getting my PhD was working for the state of Florida for the Florida Marine Research Institute, studying endangered marine mammals, specifically Florida manatees and uh, northern right whales. Yeah, that, I mean, those are really good examples of where major methods are very effective. And um, there's a couple of examples, actually. One is use data from surveys, specifically aerial surveys, to kind of estimate the population size of these animals. And, and as you might expect, you fly around in an airplane counting marine mammals, you know, you're going to miss some of them. In fact, you're going to miss most of them. And so there you have a really good example of the data that is messy and imperfect, and there's a latent variable that you're really interested in. You're trying to build a model that will adjust for all of the biases and the variance in the data to try to get a precise estimate of the underlying population. And in fact, a really extreme example of this was some work that was led by uh, Julian Martin of the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, or sorry, U.S. Geological Survey. And uh, at the time, he was working for uh, the state of Florida as well. And this was right after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And we're trying to estimate the effect of that oil spill on manatee populations. And so as a component of that, we wanted to do an estimate of the population on the Gulf of Mexico and the affected areas. And um, based on the aerial surveys, came back with no sightings of manatees. And so what's your estimate of the population size when you have no sightings? And of course, in a frequentist paradigm, that just blows up, right? If you have zero sightings, it, your estimate is, is zero with absolute precision, essentially. And um, was certainly not the case. So you can you know, build a, a Bayesian model that gives you a kind of an estimate. Perhaps we're interested in an upper bound. How big could that population have been? conditional on having observed no animals. So that's one example. And then the other one, I guess, is kind of in a, in a more holistic sense. One of the tasks that we were responsible for was estimating the probability, the population viability of the Florida manatee. And this was based on a big model, a core biological model that integrated everything we knew about the biology of the animal, the threats, due to human activities and, and other things. And some of that was based on data of varying quality, but others we had no objective information about. And so this was a case where we were integrating information from expert opinion of experts in the, in the field that study these animals, and then integrating that with data that we've collected via aerial surveys and telemetry and other things. And so with Bayesian methods, of course, it's possible because you can make your priors informative and, and integrate that with information from the data through the likelihood. So those were kind of two conspicuous examples of where Bayesian methods made a difference. Yeah. And actually, these examples are great. I think you summed up about uh, everything we talked about uh, in this episode. Plus, also, I think they put um, some accent on how you handle uh, missing data and measurement error. And, and it is actually quite natural to do that in the, in the Bayesian framework, which is really, really useful. You're even able to estimate uh, the, the posterior distribution of a missing data point, which is great. Uh, actually, that's so interesting. I think uh, I'm going to do a, a whole episode about that. Yeah, thank you, Chris, for sharing that. And um, before letting you go, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. The first one is, uh, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? 
Yeah, well, there are a couple of answers to this. I'll choose the one that I, I'm able to talk about here and one that's a little bit more general. One thing that I have always wished that I had available to me was being able to use Hamiltonian MCMC methods for discrete variables. <laughs> because uh, often I have discrete variables, things like populations, you know, numbers of animals, for example, that are discrete and you want to uh, keep those variables discrete. But um, if you're unfamiliar with Hamiltonian MCMC, it's a type of Markov chain Monte Carlo, the default method that PyMC uses, and it's based on gradient information. And of course, if you've got discrete distribution, you're not able to use gradient information. And so you typically have to do some dirty conversion of a discrete to continuous variables, or just choose a different model or a different MCMC sampling method altogether. So if I had unlimited time and resources, I would work on ways of integrating discrete variables into Hamiltonian MCMC, but not hopeful. <laughs> Actually, do you think it's going to be possible one day to have that, or uh, is it like mathematically impossible? I don't know. There was a, a PhD student from Duke University a few years ago that had an idea about this, and um, it never really came to fruition. So there have been attempts, but um, I'm not holding my breath. I think we just have to think of better ways of working around them. It would be nice. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Very interesting answer. So the second question, if you could have dinner with uh, any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or even fictional, who would it be? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, well, there's a long list here. I guess um, relative to my, you know, current um, professional uh, situation, I'm going to choose one that's related to baseball. So I'm going to pick Bill James. Uh, Bill James is still alive. Uh, he was one of the early sabermetricians, someone who applies statistical methods to baseball, and uh, he was very early on thinking about things that are now commonplace in baseball analytics. And so he was the first to come up with things like uh, runs created and win shares and, and a whole bunch of other statistics, e either directly in use themselves or are the basis for other methods. And he was thinking about this very early on. So I would love to sit down with him and pick his brain and um, learn more about the field because I'm still you know, relatively new. That would be amazing. Well, I guess Bill James is uh, listening to this podcast. <laughs> I hope so. Maybe you'll have an invite in your inbox one day. <laughs> I hope so for you. Yeah, he works for the Red Sox, so I probably uh, won't be allowed to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, uh, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I really enjoyed this dive into your different uh, activities. I feel like I could uh, do five or, or six episodes uh, just with you. And uh, I strongly encourage listeners to take a look at your work and, and tutorials. In general, you're very educational, I find, even when tackling complex topics. So I put links in, in the show notes for listeners to check out. Thank you again for taking the time and being on this show. Fantastic, Alex. Thanks for having me. And uh, I look forward to a bunch of new episodes uh, based on some of the topics that we uh, explored on this show. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. 
I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.